Because this is the word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, if you are able, would you please stand to hear from your heavenly father in his word. Deuteronomy 27, beginning in verse one, Moses writes as he is carried along, of course, by the spirit of God. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. You shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you've crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster, and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. And Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. That day Moses charged the people saying, when you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. These shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret and all the people shall answer and say, amen. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother and all the people shall say, amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark and all the people shall say, amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road and all the people shall say, amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow and all the people shall say, amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness and all the people shall say, amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal and all the people shall say, amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother and all the people shall say, amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law and all the people shall say, amen. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret and all the people shall say, Amen. 
Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, First Baptist Powell, Amen. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Actions have consequences, don't they? We learn this from a very early age. In fact, if we don't learn this, we're in a lot of trouble as life progresses. And the trouble will increase with age. As a young father, I have observed firsthand the importance of instilling this reality in my children. From a very early age, we have to learn that actions and decisions bring with them certain consequences. A toddler who takes the toy of another toddler needs to learn that there are consequences for stealing from someone or taking advantage of another simply because you are stronger. A child who hits another child must learn that physical violence brings punishment. A child who disrespects and disregards authority must learn that insubordination receives chastisement. As I've even shared with my children on a regular basis, we are never out from under authority. No one outgrows authority. In fact, the parent who persistently attempts to rescue his or her child, his or her children, from the consequences of their decisions is sentencing their children to a life of misery and death. Deuteronomy 27 and 28 vividly depicts this reality. Namely, the reality is actions have consequences. Those consequences are not the result of impersonal forces that govern nature, but those consequences are actually the result of a deeply personal and holy and sovereign God who created all things for his glory and for whom we exist. And this is a persistent reminder as we read through Deuteronomy chapter 27 and Deuteronomy chapter 28. In fact, if we were to continue reading in Deuteronomy, we only read chapter 27. If we had continued to read into chapter 28, you would find some of the same themes being unpacked in that chapter at length. And throughout Deuteronomy, we have been reminded, if you've been with us, you know this, we have been reminded of a recurring formula in God's design and in God's framework. Namely, obedience to God results in God's blessing. Disobedience to God results in God's curse. And this is the case for Israel as God's people. God has made this perfectly clear from the very beginning as he's rescued Israel out of Egypt, as he's journeyed with them, preserving them even through their disobedience in the wilderness, judging a generation that was disobedient and erecting, as it were, a generation in their stead. Now, as they stand on the plains of Moab about to enter the land of promise, the land of Canaan, God reminds his people, if you will obey me, I will bless you. However, if you disobey me, 
If you disobey my, my good and, and gracious and kind instruction, my instruction that is back in Deuteronomy chapter 10, for your good, if you disobey my instruction, I will curse you. God never minces words about this. And he certainly doesn't do it in Deuteronomy. So when Moses arrives at chapter 27 and chapter 28, which is nearing the end of this book, he impacts this formula at length to drive the point home. Obedience equals blessing. Disobedience equals curse. And Israel has to understand this. But you must understand, as people reading this book in the 21st century, you must understand that this is not simply written for the generation alive in Moses' day on the plains of Moab. This is written for our instruction and for the instruction of all of God's people who existed after this generation. And so that's precisely how we're going to approach this text. This morning, we are going to unpack the reality that various actions bring the consequences of divine blessing and divine curse. If you're taking notes, we are going to get at this text and this topic in four stages. So if you're taking notes, you can jot down these four stages and we'll unpack them in their turn. First, we will walk through chapter 27 Verses 1 to 26, and you can imagine, this is going to be high level, where we will find a reminder of God's instructions. A reminder of God's instructions. There's a ceremony and even a monument, all of which serving as a reminder of God's gracious instructions. Secondly, we will take note of the rewards for obedience to God's instructions. So first, a reminder of God's instructions in chapter 27, then the rewards for obedience to God's instructions. And this is chapter 28, verses 1 through 14. Third, we will work through chapter 28, verses 15 to 68. A long section, or subsection rather, of this broader section where we find repercussions for disobedience to God's instructions. And then finally, after looking together at a reminder, then rewards, then repercussions, we will conclude our time together with some reflections. Reflections on God's blessings and God's curses. So reminder, rewards, repercussions, and finally, Reflections. This is the roadmap for us this morning as we journey through this text. Let's begin by looking together at chapter 27, verses 1 through 3. And I'll just point out and highlight specific verses in these sections that I do think are representative of the broader section. So first, chapter 27, verses 1 through 3, where we begin to see a reminder, a reminder of God's instructions Look at the text with me. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people saying, keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And this is similar to what we've seen already throughout Deuteronomy, verse two. On the day you cross over the Jordan. So this is prospective. This is forward looking. They're on the plains of Moab. The day's coming when you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan. When that day comes, 
When you cross over to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. Verse three, and you shall write on them all the words of this law. It's difficult to know what all the words of this law mean. Does it mean every single word found in Deuteronomy up until this point? Perhaps. Perhaps it just consists of Deuteronomy 12 through 26, the primary thrust and and the bulk of God's covenant here in Deuteronomy. It's difficult to know. But the emphasis surely is on all. Don't leave any portion of it out. You shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised. And so as we unpack this a little bit more, as we see this unfold in God's instruction to Moses, in God's instruction through Moses to Israel, the people of Israel were to write God's law on these large stones that were plastered for the very purpose of providing a picture and a reminder of God's word to God's people. And of course, you know, plastering these stones would have served a couple of purposes. One, it was easier to write on the plaster or the whitewash. And two, it provided some clarity, a a white backdrop, as it were, to the, the words and the letters and the phrases and the sentences that were to be inscribed on these large stones. And these stones were to serve as a monument A monument of God's faithfulness, but also a monument reminding God's people of the importance of obeying God's instructions. Never to forget God's word. The God who had rescued them out of Egypt is the God who now commanded them. And don't miss that. Don't miss the order of all of this. It's so terribly easy, isn't it? As we read through our Old Testaments to forget the order, the redemption Redemption consistently preceded instruction. So God had already redeemed these people and now he was instructing them as his people. And these stones reminded them of just that reality. Additionally, they were to erect an altar. And what was the relationship between the larger stones and the altar? It's difficult to know. We don't receive all the details. Why? Because look, this is not written down to instruct us on how to build an altar. That's not the thrust of what's taking place. But what God actually commands the people of Israel through Moses is in addition to these large stones, you're to erect an altar in accordance with my instruction back in Exodus now. You aren't to wield iron tools in constructing this altar and as a result defile the altar of sacrifice. So build this altar of uncut stones and then offer sacrifices to God. And again, there's that theme of rejoicing. Rejoice in his presence, implying they're to partake of these sacrifices. This is a kind of covenant meal and covenant party in God's presence, rejoicing in his goodness, as verse seven indicates. And all of this was to be done at a location known as Mount Ebal or Ebal, if you like. This was located just outside of a place called Shechem. We'll return to this in just a moment. And next to Mount Gerizim, but we'll come back to that in just a moment. In addition to this monument of God's law 
And the altar upon which Israel was to sacrifice with gratitude to God for bringing them into the land God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, they were to hold a ceremony. Do you see that? Beginning in verse nine and then following all the way through verse 26. And this is when we got to the repetition. Cursed is, and all God's people shall say, amen. And you see this recurring throughout this ceremony. Look with me at verses 11 through 13. That day, this is still chapter 27, by the way, that day Moses charged the people saying, when you've crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. Verse 13, these shall stand on Mount Eval for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So the scene is vivid. Half of the people of Israel, half of the tribes standing on the slopes of one of the mountains and then half of the tribes standing on the slopes of the other mountain. And as they are standing on these slopes, by the way, you can jot this down. This is fulfilled in Joshua chapter eight. I believe it begins around verse 35. You can look at that a bit later. But Joshua eight, this takes place and they end up obeying this instruction from the Lord And what ends up happening in Joshua 8 are the Levitical priests that were charged with carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They're standing in the middle holding the Ark. And the rest of the tribe of Levi, of course, is stationed according to God's instruction on Mount Gerizim. And as these tribes are stationed there together, the Levites were to proclaim 12 representative actions that would merit God's curse. If you can imagine the scene, there's not a lot here that's positive and encouraging. Cursed be the man, cursed be the man, cursed be the man. And all of Israel was to shout as it were, amen, which is another way of saying, I agree. This is comparable in our wedding ceremonies to saying, I do. This is a covenant ceremony and they are becoming, as it were, God's special people throughout this process. We talked about this a little bit last Lord's Day. They are God's people in some sense already, but they are also, there's this tension, they are becoming God's people. And so this ceremony is a kind of marriage ceremony, a covenant ceremony in the presence of God. God bearing witness, the stones bearing witness Israel bearing witness that the one who disobeys God, that if Israel, God's people, disobey the Lord, they will be cursed. Now, I mentioned a moment ago we'd return to this location. Mounts Ebal and Gerizim were located near Shechem. Now, why is this, why is this significant? You can jot this down if you're taking notes. We're not going to turn there. But Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, it's not the only passage where this location is mentioned, but I do think this is a significant passage. In Genesis 12, 6 and 7, we learn these words, Abram passed, Abram, that is Abraham eventually, Abram passed through the land, to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then, verse seven, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So God appears to Abram and promises Abram, 
after he's already appeared to him earlier in the chapter, Genesis 12. But earlier in the chapter, he just says, go to a land I will show you. Fascinating, isn't it? Take a step. Where? Just take a step. Which direction? Just step. Trust me. There's no clarity provided early in Genesis 12. But then clarity is provided here as he's passing through. God says, now, this is the land. This is the land I will give to you and your descendants. And then we're told Abraham built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. This, this location was significant. The location itself was a monument of God's faithfulness and his persistence, his steadfastness to fulfill his promises. God always keeps his promises, church family. Amen. I said this recently. This is something that I, I was exposed to often as a young Christian. It's something I'm exposed to all the time in God's word. It's something that I want to instruct my children in. And it's the simple truth that God always, always, always keeps his promises. And so he's doing so here. That's why this, this land is significant. That's why at Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, right near Shechem. Before we move on to the rewards for obedience, I want to highlight a verse that encapsulates really one of the emphases throughout these two chapters, okay? This is, this is a verse that if you underline or highlight, it would be a good one to do so. Notice chapter 27, verse 26 the same verse from which Paul quotes in Galatians 3. Chapter 27, verse 26 says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Now the nature and extent of the obedience required here is comprehensive. And that's how Paul reads it, by the way, in Galatians 3. What is this saying? This is a kind of summary, comprehensive way of saying you will either obey or you will disobey. There's no partial obedience here. In fact, the Apostle Paul interprets this as saying, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law to do them. And that's the thrust here. By the way, he's interpreting it in context because look down at chapter 28, verse 1. Chapter 28, verse 1 confirms this interpretation as Moses instructs God's people to do how many commandments? All his commandments. We've got to get that. In order to read this properly, as, as this unfolds throughout redemptive history in God's word, in order to understand why, of course, we need someone to come and rescue, we've got to get this. God, God does not encourage partial obedience. There are, there are two possible responses to God's instructions. Either they will obey or they will disobey. There's no middle road. There's no God. But what if we obey some of the time? I mean, surely that's sufficient, right? No, it's insufficient. God's character demands complete and comprehensive obedience. A holy God demands holiness from his people. He has mercifully rescued them, but now they must obey him or they will be cursed. We'll come back to that, of course, in just a bit. Second, notice the rewards for obedience. We've seen the reminder, the ceremony, these stones, all serving to remind Israel, but now notice the rewards for obedience. This is chapter 28, 
verses 1 through 14. Look down at the first couple of verses of chapter 28. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all, again, all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And so God here tells his people that my blessings are going to fall on you if indeed you obey me. What is the nature of these of these blessings that will come from the Lord upon Israel. I'm going to summarize these in three categories. And we're going to summarize the blessings in three categories and the curses in three categories here in just a moment, but we're not going to unpack them at length. Let me just give you these categories. What is the nature of such blessings from God? First of all, they will experience life and prosperity in the land of Canaan. That's a blessing from the Lord that will come upon Israel if they obey him. You will live a long time. You will prosper in the land. I'm going to send rain in response to your obedience. We were talking this morning, just before prayer time, I met with a few brothers this morning for prayer. And we were talking about how green it is in East Tennessee right now. And I got to tell you, this Texan thinks it's a miracle. I mean, it is a... This is a miracle to have green. Um, In Texas, things have been brown for a very long time, about 94 years, I think. (laughs) And I know this is a significantly green summer. But I thought about this promise from the Lord, if you obey, I will send rain. What happens with rain? Things grow. Now, I know for us who who own yards, right, that means, well, we've got to mow again. But if you're a farmer... You need rain. You absolutely have to have an amount of rain for your crops to grow. Notice verses four and five where this prosperity and life is described in the land of Canaan. Chapter 28, verses four and five, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb. You're gonna have babies as gifts from the Lord and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. By the way, consistently in Scripture, God's blessings are described in terms of fruitfulness. Whether it's having children, whether it's having goats, not not to compare the two. (laughs) It's not to compare the two. (laughs) It was a minor slip. Whatever it may be, your crops, God's blessing is described in terms of increase and fruitfulness. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Additionally, look down at verse 11, chapter 28, verse 11. And the Lord will make you abound in what? Prosperity. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord your God swore to your fathers to give you. So this is, this is one of the aspects of God's blessing upon Israel. If they obey, they will experience life and prosperity in the land. Secondly, God will grant them victory over their enemies if they obey. This is a blessing that God will grant if 
They obey. An example of this occurs in chapter 28, verse 7. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. Notice, they're going to come against you one way, and they're going to flee from you and away from you seven ways. So that's a blessing God will give his people if indeed they obey. And then third, God will exalt them as his special people. God will exalt them as his special people. Look with me at chapter 28, verse 1, and really the second part of verse 1. The Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. They are to be his special people. Again, if they obey. So those are the rewards for obedience to God's instructions. We've seen the reminder and the rewards. Now let's look for just a few moments at the repercussions for disobedience. I know we're moving through this fairly quickly. We're going to unpack this in some of our concluding remarks, but let's keep walking through the text in chapter 28, and this is, the, this is the largest section, subsection of our couple of chapters. Chapter 28, beginning in verse 15, and then running all the way through verse 68. Okay, now let that sink in for just a moment. If we had the time, we'd read the whole thing because you would, you would feel the impact of the emphasis on God's curses. So here we find repercussions for disobedience. Look with me at chapter 28, verse 15, where the transition takes place. But, and Moses explains to God's people, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. There's no such thing as partial obedience. You will either obey or disobey. If you obey all God's blessings, everyone will fall on you. If you disobey all God's curses, every single one, will fall on you. That's the message. As with the blessings, there are themes that surface. I'm going to run through these quickly. I just want you to get the scope of this thing because we're covering so much text. Here are these three themes that I see surface in these curses. First, if Israel disobeys God's good instruction, they will suffer from poverty and death. Think in terms of the converse of the blessings. Rather than enjoying prosperity and life in the land, if they disobey, they will suffer from poverty and death. Verses 21 and 22, God warns Israel of things like pestilence, disease, and drought. Rather than providing rain for your crops to grow, I'm going to withhold rain. You'll have nothing to eat. You'll starve. Second, if Israel disobeys God's good instruction, they will be defeated by their enemies and scattered among the nations. 
Rather than enjoying victory over the nations, they will be defeated by the nations and then taken into captivity and exile throughout the nations. Sound familiar? Notice verses 47 and 48. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, don't miss that, out of the abundance God has given you, you failed to serve him, verse 48, therefore, you'll serve someone. You will serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. So failing to serve the Lord in abundance that God has provided results in serving their enemies in poverty. And this defeat, it gets incredibly graphic, horrifyingly graphic and vivid. This defeat by their enemies is described in verses 52 to 57 in details that are difficult to read. And we're not gonna read through all of that. But what I want to take note of and I want you to see is in verses 52 to 57, Israel is going to be under siege. They're going to be trapped in a town and the enemy is going to be at the gates. And there's nothing Israel will be able to do about it because they've disobeyed the Lord. And God has sent this enemy, this foreign nation or nations against them as an instrument of chastisement and God's wrath. Israel cannot be rescued in that moment and they will resort to cannibalism because they're starving. Even to the point at which in the text, Mothers are described as consuming their children. Fathers are described as consuming their children. Unthinkable. And yet it indeed happens, 2 Kings chapter 6. When Ben-Hadad of Syria sieging Samaria, two mothers get together and actually consume a child. This is supposed to shock us. And the shock we sense when we read these words really pales in comparison to the offense that disobedience against the holy God brings. We're missing something. I'm getting off the trail a little bit not too far. We're missing something as evangelicals. There is a vacuum, a void that can only be filled by the holiness of God, by an awe of who God really is as the God who alone deserves complete obedience. We're missing something when, if you were to do a survey of popular level evangelical songs, 
I would suggest to you that you're hard-pressed to find one that is written about God's fierce holiness. You're hard-pressed to find one that rather than just talking about being blessed, warns of divine curse. It's difficult because we have framed evangelicalism in such a way that we've actually, people, and I'm stealing this, people that were made in God's image have now returned the favor. And we've made a God in our own image. Not the God who alone is holy, holy, holy. And before whom even a prophet like Isaiah one who is given the commission to speak the words of God falls and cries, woe is me, I'm undone. I am a man of unclean what? Lips. That's significant for anyone to say, but especially a prophet. Even the instrument God chooses to use for his glory is unclean. And I live among a people of unclean lips. How does he know that? Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So the problem we have, I think, is we've not seen the King. And it's only then, isn't it, when Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 is positioned to receive the redemption accomplished from the altar of sacrifice when one member of the seraphim flies to him and applies the coal to the place of his uncleanness and says, this has touched your lips. Your sin is forgiven. Your iniquity is taken away. Another way of saying this is to say we can't really understand and boast in the good news of the gospel unless we get the gravity of the bad news. Another way to say it is, and I'm just quoting people at this point, okay? I'm not making any of this up. Walter Chantry said it is the sharp needle of the law that prepares the way for the scarlet thread of the gospel. So here in Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28, we receive a picture of the God who is holy, 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 who isn't playing games. He's not dismissing sin. He's he's not saying, oh, no big deal. Try again next time. That's not the good news of the gospel. Now, the good news of the gospel must be built upon the reality that God won't and he cannot, his nature demands that he does not overlook sin that is an offense to who he is. And that's, by the way, no limitation. That's a perfection. So I'm back on the trail here and I have no idea where I was. Israel will be scattered by their enemies. They'll be scattered among the nations. And this horrible picture presents itself in chapter 28 of consuming their own. 
And then third, we're back on now. Third, God will reverse their redemption out of Egypt and they will return as slaves. Now again, this is the third category or subcategory under repercussions for disobedience. So if Israel disobeys God's good instruction, they'll suffer poverty and death. They'll be defeated by their enemies and scattered among the nations. And then third, this climax is in God will reverse their redemption and he's going to ship them back to Egypt. And this is how this is how this text concludes. Notice the harrowing warning in chapter 26, rather 28, verse 68. Chapter 28, verse 68, and the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt. A journey that I promise that you should never make again and there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. It's one thing to be a slave in the ancient world. It's another thing to be a slave that no one wants to purchase. That's a death sentence. Chapter 28, verse 63, really serves as a kind of summary verse of all of this. As the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight. You hear that language? So the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. You shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. A couple of commentators that penned their work almost 200 years ago, actually, wrote concerning this verse, quote, greatly as the sin of man troubles God and little as the pleasure may be which he has in the death of the wicked, yet the holiness of his love demands the punishment and destruction of those who despise the riches of his goodness and long-suffering, so that God displays his glory in the judgment and destruction of the wicked no less than in blessing and prospering the righteous. Now, have you noticed... Have you noticed that the weight of these two chapters falls not on the blessing, but on the curse? Did you notice that? Moses spends all of his time early on, right, the whole ceremony, you notice that? Chapter 27, the ceremony, when you get there, notice no one's saying, blessed be the man, and all God's people said amen. The whole ceremony is consumed with curses, Then you get to chapter 28 and you think, ah, yes, finally, blessings. And Moses spends about 14 verses on blessings, only then to return to the curses in verse 15 and carry through the rest of the chapter, verse 68. Some 72 verses are devoted in this section to curses and a measly 14 verses consists of blessings. Moses is concerned primarily with warning God's people of the disastrous effects of disobedience rather than accenting God's promise to bless them if they obey. Why? Because Israel and even Israel as a microcosm of humanity Because Israel and humanity will fail every time. That's it. 
I mean, if we had nothing else, if we had read nothing else in God's word after this chapter, chapter 28, we would know, I know where this is headed. I had the privilege of preaching through Joshua a few years ago before I was called here to First Baptist Powell. I want you to listen to how Joshua addresses Israel at the end of his life. And Joshua's days were good days. They were good days under a good leader. And we'll get to him actually later in Deuteronomy. But Joshua says this in Joshua 24, verses 19 to 20. You are not able to serve the Lord. How's that? We will serve the Lord, Joshua. No, you won't. Can't you see everybody leaving that church service saying, I just really felt uplifted, encouraged. I loved it. Felt so good about myself leaving. You are not able to serve the Lord, he says, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. So what's the answer? Galatians 3, 13 through 14. Hear the words of God, church family. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. I don't miss this. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree Verse 14, so Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Do you feel the gospel wash over you? After getting a glimpse of God's fierce holiness then the gospel is balm to your soul. In Christ, God's curse fell on his obedient son to extend his blessings to disobedient ones. I remember reading some time ago, it's in the book, I believe, What is the Gospel? Greg Gilbert writes that book. It's a it's a nine marks book published by Crossway that we pass out in our Membership Matters class. Helpful summary of the gospel written by, by a pastor at Third, Third Baptist in Louisville, Greg Gilbert. And there is one facet of the book that really stood out to me the first time I read it. And he, he talked about how good news improperly placed doesn't sound very good after all. For example, if, if I came to you and I said to you concerning your son or your daughter or your grandson or your granddaughter or your wife or your husband, if I came to you and I said, hey, by the way, they're doing well. They're doing well. They're healthy. You might look at me without context and think, what are you talking about? You've got no context for it. I assume they were doing well. But if I had prefaced the good news that they're doing well with something like your son was in a car accident this morning that you didn't know about. Now the statement 
He's doing well. Means something, doesn't it? So it is with the gospel. We're never ready to embrace Jesus as Savior unless we know what it is we need to be saved from. And so Deuteronomy 27 and 28 gives us a vivid picture of what it is out of which we need salvation. And in light of this, we realize that by means of his incarnation, his death in our place and for our sins, his resurrection from the dead, we realize what Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that in Christ we might receive the blessing God promises in the law. Now we get it. And now we're ready to embrace Christ. This morning I would be remiss if I didn't implore you and beg you by the power of the Spirit of God if you have not surrendered to Jesus Christ if you've not come to the end of yourself, if you've not realized that whatever you can do is insufficient and inadequate when standing in the presence of an infinitely holy God, if you've not embraced Jesus Christ in faith and surrendered your life to the one worthy of that surrender in Christ Jesus, then I exhort you to do that this morning. Embrace him, trust in him, surrender to him, and as a result, serve him. And if that's where you are, or if you have questions about what it means to know the one who became a curse for you so that you might receive the blessing promised to Abraham and his seed, then would you stay afterward and have a conversation with us? There will be a pastor standing in the room I mentioned earlier, the crossroads, as you exit this room and take a left. On the right-hand side out there in the foyer area before you leave this building is a room labeled crossroads. Go in there and have a conversation with the pastor in that room so that he can come alongside of you and you alongside of us as we learn to serve and savor and treasure and honor the Savior who became a curse for us. Well, we're out of time, and I said we were going to have some reflections. So let's do that quickly, okay? And out of time is relative, you understand. I was told the other day, I remember the sermon, you went over 20 minutes, and I said, according to whom? I was right on time that day, I thought. We've looked at a reminder of God's instructions, rewards for obedience, repercussions for disobedience, now let's close with a few reflections and we won't spend long on any of these, but just to mention them first. I want you to consider as we wrap this up that a robust understanding of divine curses that will one day, now get this, will one day consummately fall on unrepentant sinners empowers us in a number of ways. If we really do understand that this is going to happen, that the holy God must punish sin and he will punish sin when Christ returns, then I think we're impacted in a number of ways. One of those ways, of course, is through repentance and faith, as I mentioned a moment ago. Recognizing that we have merited and earned and now deserve God's curse, and so we flee to Christ who became a curse for us so that he might extend the blessing to us. Additionally, it propels us, doesn't it, to go with the gospel that saved us and is saving us and to share that gospel with others who are in desperate need of hearing it. 
And so we have the privilege even this week, dear friends, to go with the message that God in Christ was becoming a curse so that he might extend his blessings to you. But if you don't embrace Jesus Christ, you will bear the curse he promises. We shouldn't mince words about this message. It's neither loving nor humble to alter God's message. And so we go in love, with prayer, in humility, recognizing that there but for the grace of God go we, but we go with the message of the gospel, sharing that message with others. And then also, another thing that this message does, that is a robust understanding of God's curse, and then the realization that someday God is going to cause his curse to fall on unrepentant sinners It empowers us to wait patiently throughout this life with confidence that God will someday right all wrongs when Christ returns. It empowers us in a way that Paul says in Romans chapter 12 to leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. It's actually a quote from Deuteronomy 32, if I recall. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so throughout this life, when we suffer wrong, we can trust. When we see others suffering wrong, we can trust a good and sovereign and holy God that someday, someday he will make all things right. So that's first. I want you to consider as we leave this place a robust understanding of divine curse and how it is that empowers us to repent, to go with the gospel, and to wait patiently. Second, be aware Be aware that actions have consequences. Actions have consequences, and we live in a world in which that's the case. But this is true for the Christian just as much as it's true for the non-Christian. We recognize that Christ became a curse for us, that God's curse won't finally fall on us, but there is a sense in which God's word consistently warns against using that as a license for disobedience. And there are times when God's word warns against believing pretentiously, presumptuously in a grace that doesn't transform. So Galatians chapter six, verse seven is a passage where the apostle Paul says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will also reap. And he goes on to talk about the warning against sowing unto the flesh and reaping corruption. So don't lose sight of that. The gospel is never to be a license for disobedience. In fact, if our lives are characterized by disobedience, there is good reason. Good reason to ask the question, do we know the Lord? And it may be indeed that you do and repent and serve the Lord that purchased you. It may be that you don't. Then repent and serve the Lord who purchased you. Third, by the power of Christ, obey God's instructions. By the power of Christ, obey God's instructions. 
Our only hope of receiving God's blessing rather than God's curse is through faith in Jesus Christ. We've made that abundantly clear. Christ has come and become a curse for us to extend the blessing of God to us. But as we've oftentimes noted, the promise of the gospel is not simply the removal of the guilt of sin, but the crippling of the power and authority of sin in our lives. Don't lose sight of that. That's good news. We don't just need forgiveness. We need transformation. And that's the promise of the gospel. As it's been oftentimes said, Christ came to remove both the penalty and the power of sin over us. So cling to those promises and seek to obey the Lord, recognizing that all such obedience comes only through the power of Christ in you. It's not you who live or lives, but Christ who lives in you. And the life you now live by faith, you live in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. That's the life of the Christian. That's the life of obedience. God's law, Deuteronomy 27 and 28, reminds us that God, the holy God, has holy demands, but it does not empower us to meet those demands. So I want to conclude with this thought. The good news of the gospel, on the other hand, equips us. Equips us to live a life of enduring and ever-increasing obedience through the one who provides that obedience in us and for us. Ray Stevens, up there. Hey, brother. He reminded me last Lord's Day of a tremendous quote. Tremendous quote oftentimes attributed to John Bunyan, which it's, I can't find where John Bunyan said it. That's debated. But it, one of those comments, you know, if he didn't, he should have said it. Here's the quote. And Ray, thank you for bringing this to my attention. Last Lord, say, brother. Run, John, run. The law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to behold your holiness and your grace in your word. To know today that if we are trusting in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are being lavished with and will be lavished eternally with your blessings because Christ bore our curse. Father, I pray that we would not leave here complacent or stagnant, but refreshed and renewed and empowered and in awe to more faithfully and persistently serve the God who has rescued us and who now empowers us for a life of obedience. Recognizing, of course, that in this life we will not be able to offer to you perfection. But you have given us perfection in Christ. And someday, when Christ Jesus, your son, returns we will finally be like him, perfect, for we will see him as he really is.
Until that day, O oh God, be glorified. Through Christ and by your spirit, we pray these things and all God's people said, amen.